The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. people, a cemetery is a place to pay last respects to a loved one, to grieve a loss, or revisit a bittersweet memory of a happier time. For others, it's a place of fear, full of superstitions and terror. Imagine a graveyard at night, mist rolling between the headstones, pitch black with no moon in sight, or a full moon, even spookier perhaps. There's a reason. This is the setting for countless horror films. Whether or not you're a believer in superstitions, there's no question that a cemetery isn't exactly your normal location for a casual meeting. But in the early morning hours of April 3rd, 2013, two people pulled into the Osteen Cemetery in Deltona, Florida to have a quick chat. Only one of them left alive. Join me now as we untangle the case of James Schaefer, a hard-working family man who vanished without a trace, leaving behind a tangled web of secret debts, boxing him into a corner he couldn't escape. You'll learn how James tried to come up with a plan to solve his money problems, and how it cost him his life. Nestled in southwest Fallujah County in central Florida, is the suburban city of Deltona. It boasts rolling hills of oak, magnolia, and plenty of lakes, with only about 25 miles in between, separating it from the ocean shore. It's no wonder that hot and humid Deltona has become one of the largest cities in central Florida, with a population over 85,000. While its beautiful parks and wildlife conservation areas are a popular place for bird watchers, there are always, of course, more sinister things to be on the lookout for in Florida, such as eastern rattlesnakes, black widow spiders, and probably what Florida is most known for, its alligators. But sometimes, the most dangerous creatures are hiding in plain sight, or even just behind the door, across the street. In April 2013, the 1,600-square-foot beige-and-white 1970s brick home on 1611 Horseshoe Terrace should have been a big enough place for 42-year-old Angela Stolt and her teenage daughter and son. But the house that looked so innocuous on the outside was jam-packed with junk on the inside, piled with debris, graffiti on the walls, broken toilets, and garbage strewn all around the home. The house had a large two-car attached garage with even more junk, as well as several bulging garbage bags. The home reeked, both from the broken toilets and because, as Angela told her daughter, a rat had gotten trapped in the oven when it was set to broil. 
And then there was the matter of the bulging black garbage bags in the garage, which, considering the state of the house, probably didn't seem so out of place. Angela told her son that the bags contained the carcass of a rotting deer she'd hit with her car and that she needed help getting rid of. So on April 5th, 2013, Angela and her son lugged the putrid garbage bags out of the house to dispose of them. Meanwhile, right across the street, at 1610 Horseshoe Terrace, a larger beige-brown roofed home sat quieter and more subdued than usual. Normally, James Schaefer, his girlfriend Candy, and their four children would be there. But now, one member of the family was conspicuously absent. 36-year-old James Schaefer was a hard-working limo driver and family man. He'd been with his girlfriend Candy for 17 years, and they were about as close as you could get to being married without the fancy party and the marriage license. James and Candy had three children together and also raised Candy's other son from a previous relationship. Together, they shared the four-bedroom rancher on Horseshoe Terrace, and by 2013, they'd been living there for six years. James was a big guy, nearly six feet tall and 275 pounds, with plenty of tattoos, including the Metallica skull and the word gringo on his neck. But behind that burly image was a friendly, well-loved man. Born August 3rd, 1976 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, James, known as Jimmy to friends, loved sports and was a pretty accomplished baseball player. But James put down the bat and mitt and picked up a job at a local limousine company where he became one of the more popular drivers. Apart from his job as a limo driver, James was also receiving a $1,230 social security disability check every month for mental health reasons. Around 2007, Jimmy and his family moved into the Horseshoe Terrace home, and it was looking like a good place to get a job and settle in for the long haul. In fact, right across the street at 1611, Jimmy had even made friends with their neighbor, Angela Stolt, and her husband, Joe. Jimmy and Angela's kids played together, and it seemed like they really couldn't ask for better neighbors. Because Jimmy's limo job had him working until the early morning hours when everyone in his household was still asleep, Jimmy would regularly hang out and have a few drinks with Angela, who was a night owl. On April 2nd, 2013, Jimmy got into his truck and drove to work for a shift at the limo company. He was dressed in his all-black uniform, a dress shirt, dress pants, dress shoes, and a nice tie. That night, he took a group from Kissimmee to Tampa and back again. By around 2.30 a.m., Jimmy finished work and returned to the limo company headquarters. But instead of getting into his own truck and driving home himself, somebody else was already there waiting to pick him up. The last person to see Jimmy, a mechanic from the company, watched Jimmy get into a dark-colored car full of people at 3 a.m. As it drove off into the early morning hours of April 3rd, without any lights on, no one imagined it would be the last time anyone would see Jimmy. When Jimmy's family woke up on the morning of April 3rd, they realized he wasn't there. As the day wore on, 
it became clear something was up. Jimmy hadn't come home. He hadn't shown up for his next shift at work, and nobody knew where he was. But it was Jimmy's father back in Pennsylvania who first started to raise the alarm. Jimmy's father had called Candy to see, you know, hey, you know where he's at? Do you know where he's headed? So Jimmy's father was extremely concerned because apparently they, they talked every day, sometimes twice a day from what he was telling us. So when he didn't hear from his, his boy, he knew something was going on. Or he, he had a strong suspicion that something was going on. That's John Brady, a former Volusia County Sheriff's Office investigator. He's retired from law enforcement now, but agreed to speak with us about what became one of the strangest cases he's ever been a part of. When Jimmy Schaefer's father reported Jimmy missing on April 4th, 2013, John Brady, along with other officers, started their investigation by going to Jimmy's house and speaking to his girlfriend, Candy. But when he spoke to her, he didn't quite get the reaction he was expecting. It was pretty odd. Candy didn't show the level of concern that Jimmy's father did. And we, we kind of asked her about that. And she said that he, he has done this before or, or done similar type things where he's gone for two or three days at a time and hasn't contacted the family. So she wasn't super concerned. Now, police will be the first to tell you that missing adult cases aren't typically approached the same way that, say, a missing child would be. There's nothing illegal about an adult choosing to disappear. In Jimmy's case, what they were looking for was any sense of possible foul play. Had something happened to Jimmy? Or was he simply choosing to be incommunicado with his family? She, she gave us a lot of background information about where he worked, how often he worked, kind of his habits, who he hung out with. I believe she gave us some contact information for some friends. We asked, you know, about finances, cell phones, just general type questions, just gathering information about Jimmy. It was a very interesting conversation because she wasn't nearly as concerned as Jimmy's father was, and which honestly kind of lowered our apprehension a little bit, I think, um, looking back on it. More and more, it was sounding like Jimmy's disappearance was most likely self-imposed. But during their talk with Candy, John learned one thing that did seem odd. Candy shared with us that Jimmy's social security disability went into Angela Stolt, the neighbor across the street's bank account. Angela was Jimmy's social security payee an officially designated person who helps manage government funds received by an individual. Not every person who receives social security funds requires a payee, and we don't know the exact reason why Jimmy specifically required one. Jimmy's previous payee was his mother, but when she passed away, he asked Angela if she'd be open to take over in October 2012. The arrangement was a little unusual, to say the least but certainly not illegal. Still, even detectives wondered why Jimmy hadn't gotten Candy, his girlfriend, to be the payee. We asked her why. We asked Candy, why are you... Just, that's just odd. That's just strange. And she said that she doesn't mess with the money in the house. That's not her business. And that's what Jimmy wanted to do. And apparently Jimmy couldn't get a bank account or lost a bank account or, or, or something like that that he was willing to let Angela Stolt handle his money for him. 
It just so happened that while investigators were speaking with Candy, Angela Stolt was sitting outside her house on the lawn, watching them. So naturally, John and Sergeant Jessica Pa went over to speak with her about Jimmy. I just kind of introduced myself and said, hey, if you can help us out locating this guy, we'd appreciate it. I'm sure we'll be back to ask him more questions if he doesn't show up. So, you know, just kind of general interview type questions. And I, I believe the conversation revolved around, hey, we need to know if he's spending money, if he's withdrawing money from an ATM. How exactly is he getting the money from you after it gets deposited in his account? So we, we did have a, a brief conversation about that. I got the impression that Jimmy and Angela were platonic, kind of neighborly friends, that she was just doing him a favor. Again, she was not concerned that he was missing. And Angela told investigators she hadn't seen Jimmy in a few days, but would let them know if she did. As investigators continued communicating with Candy, everything they were learning indicated that Jimmy had probably disappeared on his own accord. She said, hey, look, I got this text, and I believe her son got a text, too. The text messages that Candy and her son had received from Jimmy said that he owed people some money, and he wasn't able to say exactly when he'd be home again. Even his friends had gotten texts from Jimmy about people following him and how he had to hide, but said when the coast was clear, he'd get a hold of them. This information added a new wrinkle to what might have happened to Jimmy. As investigators began looking more closely into Jimmy's life, it turned out Jimmy had actually been in a world of financial trouble. And it wasn't just one debt breathing down his neck. Jimmy had also been late on his rent. His water had been cut off. He gambled and lost constantly, owing bookies significant amounts of money. Checks he'd written bounced, and he was even overdrawn on his bank account. His financial situation was so bad that before his case was even closed, Jimmy's family would be evicted from their home. The motive behind Jimmy's disappearance appeared to be entirely financial. And in that neck of the woods, according to John Brady, limo companies had a reputation for being a little shady. So the limo company was run out of a rather large house. So the owner of the limo business was I believe he was paying all these folks under the table. And, and then there was a there was a mechanic that lived out at the house and some just random woman that lived out there. So there were there were a bunch of suspicious circumstances around the limo business. So we, we did spend quite a bit of time interviewing the owner of the limo company, the people that resided at that house, which was the headquarters for the business, and then some of the other, other limo drivers. The investigators' only real lead from the limo company came from the mechanic who apparently had been the last person to see Jimmy before he disappeared, hopping into a dark-colored car full of people around 3 a.m. All the evidence police were gathering seemed to indicate the same thing. Jimmy had gone into hiding on his own will. This is the point where many adult missing persons cases might come to a standstill. But the Volusia County Sheriff's Office kept digging which Detective John Brady states, in large part, was because of Jimmy's father. Jimmy's father was extremely persistent, and that kind of ratcheted up our level of effort, I guess you'd say. Jimmy's father became the proverbial squeaky wheel, calling in once or twice a day to keep pressure on police to locate Jimmy. He was certain 
something must have happened to his son. Jimmy may have had his problems, but he was deeply loved, and his family wanted him back home safely. With the decision made to keep devoting resources to Jimmy's disappearance, investigators kept working the case. Something in the back of John Brady's mind kept telling him that perhaps the odd woman who lived across the street might know more than she was letting on. The one who had a joint bank account with Jimmy. After all, if Jimmy was having money problems, it seemed likely he'd contact the person who handled his money. It was just a hunch, but Angela's house just happened to be along the way on John's daily commute to work, so he decided to stop by. I just figured, okay, if I swing by in the morning, because we already knew that there were some odd circumstances, plus I was in the neighborhood, right? So it was, it was on the way in, and I just figured, okay, I'll show some activity on the case by stopping by and checking in with Angela, see if she heard from them. And that, that was my goal, especially the first three, four, five visits was, hey, have you heard from him? You know, his dad won't stop calling. Jimmy's dad won't stop calling us. Have you heard from him? But I, I felt I felt she was hiding something. I felt that she was hiding the fact that she knew where Jimmy was or she knew or she was either helping him or she knew where he was. So, yeah, I, I started going over to just to try to figure out where Jimmy was. John's daily visits to Angela's house began the day the missing persons report was filed, the day after he'd first met her on her front lawn. But the more John interacted with Angela, the more convinced he became. She must know more about what had happened to Jimmy. We had started to get some cell phone records and we started to get some financial records because those take two, three, four days to, to come in. So based on Angela's statements and based on some of those financial and cell phone records, we collectively felt that it was probably a good idea to have her come in sit down and do a more formal interview. You know, it was a bunch of stuff in the Angela jar that made us say, hey, we, we need to bring her in here and have her answer some of these questions to help us find Jimmy. Soon investigators went to Angela's home and asked permission to search her house. It turned out to be an experience John Brady would never forget. And when we walked through that house, I had honestly never seen anything like it. And I'd seen some houses in, in, in really bad shape. She had her two kids that lived there. Her son was a teenager and then uh, a daughter. And I believe she was 11 or 12 years old. So there's three people living in this house. We immediately recognized that it was, it was horrible in there. There was trash everywhere. There were no floor coverings. So the floors were all cement. So there was no carpet. There was no tile, no linoleum, you know, none of it. It was just straight cement. There were some pieces of furniture, but there was just junk piled on them. I just don't know how she lived in there. There was fast food wrappers everywhere. It just was horrible. It looked like one of those quarter houses. And then we walked through the kitchen and it didn't look like food had been prepared in there for, for months, maybe years. I mean, there were, there were dirty pots and pans everywhere. The kids' bedrooms were unbelievable. I wouldn't let my dog live in the condition she was letting her kids live in. It, it was that bad. I, it, it was hard to describe just the level of disarray that was in that house. It just didn't look like human beings lived in that house. When we left there, we all said that was like the Adams family. I, I mean, it was that strange and dark. And I still think back on it and shake my head. I, I, just the, the deplorable living conditions she was letting those kids live in. 
Along with the home walkthrough, Angela also agreed to go down to the police station and sit down for a formal interview, something made even more urgent by Angela's admission that she'd been lying to the investigators. She said that since Jimmy disappeared, that he texted her, something that Jimmy's phone records could also now verify. Sergeant Jessica Paw began the interview by laying the groundwork, suggesting that Jimmy was hiding out somewhere and Angela was the key to finding him. I told you that I'm not going to give you up. I told you that I'm not going to tell you, tell him how I found him. I'm not going to ruin your friendship with him. I'm not going to do that. But I'm also going to do my job. So, if you were hanging out with him somewhere, I need to know where that's at. The situation was simple. If the people who were after Jimmy were so dangerous that he needed to hide from them, well, there was no telling what they'd do to him if they found him. You understand something? Do you understand what's going to happen if this turns into a homicide? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about if somebody actually does find him before we find him? Have you thought about that? So, while you're thinking you're protecting him, he ends up in a ditch somewhere. First, Sergeant Pa reminded Angela that she was Jimmy's friend, but then went in for the kill and suggested that maybe Jimmy's friendship with Angela might have been a little one-sided. I want to take him out of my database that's missing. He's clearly trying to evade us and anyone else that might be looking for him. As far as I'm concerned, I don't know if he's bullshit or not because he could be lying to you. This could be some stupid ploy for him to get clear his name with everything and walk away from his whole life and it sounds like he just wants to start over. With Jimmy's case, it always seemed to come back around to money. So when you became the payee of his social security or whatever, why did you become the payee on it? He begged me like for weeks and I told him no several times. No, 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 I don't want to do it. And He's like, I got nobody else. I was like, why won't your wife do it? And he said, she doesn't want to. I was like, what about Maria? She can't do it anymore. What about your dad? Can't do it because he's out of state. And I didn't want to do it. But I just wanted to help him, you know? Mm -hmm. I've always just wanted to help him. Right. On the surface... There was nothing illegal about Angela and Jimmy's strange social security payee arrangement, but Angela admitted there was a little more to the deal. In exchange for Angela becoming his payee, Jimmy was supposed to pay her a fee of $100 each month, and that actually was illegal. But instead of benefiting Angela the way she'd hoped, Jimmy was constantly overdrawing their joint bank account which was later confirmed through bank statements. So instead of making a little extra cash, all Jimmy had been doing was costing Angela more. So your name is not coming off of that until we lift this freeze. They're not going to let you have any access to that account. And rightfully so. You trusted him. He fucked you over. You tell him to come to us. He fucked you over again. And he's going to come back to your house. You have to understand that if he gets high and he wants his money, are you telling me that you know him so well that he you don't think that he has a, a tendency to get violent? Do you think that he, if he's 
wigged out on cocaine that he doesn't have a chance of sticking a knife to your neck or your kid's neck? It was a sobering thought, and suddenly, Angela started telling a different story. One that involved Jimmy coming to her house the day after he was reported missing. So when he comes to your house and he tells you, you tell him that we've been there. He knows we've been there. And I begged him to go see you and... What did he say? He said that people are looking for him and they said that they use... said that people are looking for him that they use the police to find him. And I don't understand that. Angela then said he'd also come to her house another time in a car with a driver she didn't know and gave her money to cover some of the overdraft on the bank account. So you don't just talk to him once and he disappears. He's going to call again for money or some shit like that. So I want you to be honest with us because you're, you know a lot more than what you're telling us. You've known him for many years, so I think you know who he may know or where he may be. Okay. I don't I mean, all we're asking for is help. That's it. If I could give you help, I would. Eventually, Angela offered several people as suspects, including Jimmy's boss and some drug dealers. But investigators weren't buying it. Is Jimmy dead? I hope not. Do you think Jimmy's dead? No. Why wouldn't you think Jimmy's dead? Give me a reason why you don't think he's dead. Because he's disappeared before and he's always showing up. The conversation then turned to the possibility that Jimmy had gotten mixed up in the drug trade, and perhaps this might explain what happened to him. So that's why I know you know a little bit more about what goes on with Jimmy. So let's be honest with each other. It's not going to get him. Attention to his I know, but it's never going to get him. In, it's not going to get him in trouble if he's involved in the shit. So he's involved in it. But we need to understand his lifestyle here. You being as close as you are to him is going to have, you're going to have the best information. So obviously he trusts you because he trusts you with his money. He trusts you basically. I mean, you guys have been intimate together. So there I is, really I know, but this is, this is a sign of trust here. Okay. It is trust. You're his payee on his freaking social security. He trusts you. So he's going to tell you things that he doesn't normally tell other people. So please be honest with me and tell me what you know. Did you catch that? He said Jimmy and Angela had been intimate, and Angela responded that she was really drunk. Angela would later deny that anything sexual had gone on between her and Jimmy, but it was obvious that things had been at least a little complicated between them. All we need to do is find Jimmy. And I'm hoping that you really see him that day. I'm hoping he's not dead like people are saying. People are saying? People are saying that they heard Jimmy got murdered. And if Jimmy got murdered, and you're not telling us where he is, you can be held accountable. Because you've, you, you've seen him last. But I haven't. Not as the person who murdered him, but it could be principal there. This is... And according to you, you were the person who seen him last. From the last information we had. It is. But I'm hoping that that didn't happen. I'm hoping that Jimmy's not murdered. That's my hope. And my hope is that we find this guy and he's, he's okay. That, that's what I'm hoping for. The interview ended and Angela was free to leave. But investigators now knew that Angela was far more involved than they originally suspected. 
Still, she was claiming to have no idea where Jimmy could possibly be. But who was this strange woman with the never-ending stories? In 1972, Angela Stolt was born into a military family in Bangkok, Thailand. After traveling throughout her childhood, her family finally chose Deltona, Florida to settle down. At just 15 years old, Angela was married for the first time, and according to Angela, that relationship was fraught with the horrors of spousal abuse, which resulted in several injuries. By age 20, she managed to leave him, but not without something to remember their time together. PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a prescription for antidepressants. The way Angela tells it, her next marriage went the same way. She had a son and divorced her second husband at 23 and then had Xanax added to her medication load. At 25, she married again, this time giving birth to a daughter. Eventually, Angela and her husband Joe and her two children moved to 1611 Horseshoe Terrace, which is how they met Jimmy and his family around 2007. Jimmy and Joe became fast friends, but after Joe suffered a number of strokes, his personality turned violent, and he left his family behind in 2011. Though Joe was no longer providing for her, Angela was able to keep the family afloat between her social security disability checks and the occasional bookkeeping work for Jimmy, and Jimmy provided her with the companionship she desperately needed. It seemed things got too close between them though, and the lines of their friendship had blurred, and by the end of 2012, Angela had become Jimmy's social security payee. After Angela's police interview, John Brady continued making his daily morning visits to Angela's house on his way to the office, something he did every single workday for two straight weeks. During that two-week period, I, I definitely noticed that Angela was becoming more withdrawn. She just was not having any kind of eye contact or, or it didn't seem like she wanted to talk to me. At the end of that second week, I know Jimmy's father uh, had been kind of calling a whole lot more. Instead of once or twice a day, he was calling three or four times a day for updates. Not only was Angela withdrawn, John could see the physical toll the ordeal was taking on her. It was obvious she wasn't eating or sleeping properly, and from the comments she made to John, it was clear she was also becoming paranoid, claiming that the police were surveilling her, recording her conversations, and even using helicopters to spy on her. On April 20th, 2013, 16 days after Jimmy Shaver's disappearance, Angela finally cracked. That day, she arrived at her parents' home with her children in tow and informed her family she'd committed a crime. She then announced she was going to kill herself and hugged her kids and kissed them goodbye. Angela's older sister couldn't believe what she was hearing. She decided to call Volusia County Emergency Services and fortunately, they were quick to respond. Around 11 p.m. that night, Angela was involuntarily institutionalized under Florida's Baker Act, a law that allows someone who is a threat to themselves or others to be detained and observed by medical professionals for up to 72 hours. 
and it didn't take long for word to get around to the investigators working Jimmy's case. I was not on call, but I got a call from the on-call investigator saying, hey, Brady, you're not going to believe this. Angela's been Baker acted, and she's claiming that she killed Jimmy. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I was stunned. I was floored. There was, there was zero suspicion, zero suspicion that she had anything to do with harming him at all. And he went on to say that she doesn't want to talk to anybody but you. I said, all right, well, I'll get dressed. I'll, I'll come in. It was, you know, two o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. So when I finally got to the district office, she had already been taken into custody under a Baker Act. They had brought her into the precinct, into the interview room. But a decision was made not to interview her that night just because she was in our custody under a Baker Act. With the decision made to postpone an interview with Angela, she was taken from the precinct to a medical health facility. But as she was leaving the building, she happened to walk right past John Brady. And when she did, she made a comment that stunned him to his core. Again, this is two, three o'clock in the morning. And she looks over at me and she says, Brady, why didn't you come into my house that very first day? Until John could interview Angela formally, he was only able to guess at what Angela could have possibly meant. And when he did, it was worse than anything John could have possibly imagined. So fast forward six or seven hours, when I, we got a call from dispatch, hey, Angela wants to talk to Brady, she wants to talk to him now. And this was nine or 10 o'clock that Sunday morning. And so me and another investigator got our stuff together and went out to the mental health facility where she had been cleared and she wanted to have a conversation right then and there. After more than two weeks investigating this increasingly bizarre case, John was finally about to find out what had happened to Jimmy. And of course, it all started with money. He wanted me to ask my father, my dying father, for $2,000 to cover his thing. His, um, his rent. Yeah. Okay. And I said, well, what about the account? Don't you need another whatever to get it right and back on track? Sure. How much do you really need, Jimmy? It's like $4,000. like, well, he's got it, I'm sure. I'll ask. He was like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'll even give him, give him my title. Title to what? To his truck. Oh, okay. And at that point, I was so fed up with his lies and his bullshit. I mean, just the last month, he takes my, opens my wallet and takes his card. I'm surprised he didn't take mine. Right. I mean, there's been times when he wanted me to overdraft my account. According to Angela, when Jimmy couldn't overdraft his account any further, he asked her to overdraft hers. But Angela's bank account didn't have an option for overdraft. I took my card up there, swiped it, put in $300 and said, insufficient funds, see? Right, right. <laughs> Mine don't do that. Sure, yeah. Because I'm set up to where it's protected. Sure. Where it won't do, won't do that. that, yeah. You're responsible. Well... Look how responsible I am. I let myself get in so much debt because of him. Um, so now he wanted four thousand dollars. Yes. And you said okay. No. But you had? Okay. Did you have any intention to get the four thousand, or even ask your dad? Angela shook her head. No, she would never ask her dying father for money for Jimmy. She was fed up, 
and ready to show him exactly what it felt like to be betrayed by someone you trust. And that's when she dropped a bombshell. Angela revealed that she'd been the one who picked Jimmy up from the limo company at 3 a.m. on the night he disappeared. The other people the mechanic had seen in the car were two children. According to her, they drove back to Angela's place. After the kids went to bed, Angela stayed up and had drinks with Jimmy and spoke about the money Angela was supposed to get from her father. Money that would never materialize. What was in those drinks? What were you guys drinking? We were drinking vodka, peach schnapps, and Flexerol. Flexerol is a prescription muscle relaxer that works as a nerve blocker, not something recommended to mix with alcohol. What, why is, what is the Flexerol? What does that do for the drink? It kind of enhances the buzz, I guess. Angela had stolen the Flexerol from her parents and then mixed it into a drink they shared. But that shared drink was a little one-sided. While Angela only had a few sips, Jimmy drained the glass. Finally, it was time for Angela to get Jimmy's money from her dad. At least, that's what she told him she was going to do. Now, what do you tell him to get him into the car and go see your dad? Let's go. And so he's all excited. Oh, gosh, yes. Because you said that you're going to go see your dad to get $4,000. But instead of driving out to Angela's father's house, she drove them to the Osteen Cemetery when Jimmy asked why she chose that particular location. They needed to wait there and kill some time before father woke up. But when she couldn't contain herself any longer, Angela turned to her friend and said eight words. How's it feel to be lied to, Jimmy? His reaction? His reaction is what the fuck? And then I tell him, I said, my dad's not going to give you any money. I'm not going to give you any money. And I'm going to turn off the check cash in advance. And that's when he gets irate. He's like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, bitch. I'm going to fucking kill you. According to Angela, that's when Jimmy attacked her. She said she had to fight him off somehow. So she reached into a box of camping supplies in the back seat. I just grabbed the first thing I could. And... What was it? It was an ice pack. Okay. I wrapped my hand around it, and this hand was coming towards my face. And I still got this hand over here like this, right? And okay. I went like that with it. Okay, so I was coming at you, or Timmy was coming at you. Yes. I got you like this, and I'm moving towards you, and you took the pick and stuck it in my right eye? Yes, sir. And what did Jimmy do? Did he release you? No. He's still coming at so here and still coming. Did, what do you do with this thing? Did he hit your face? Did he hit you in the shoulder? What do you do? This hand comes up and does that number like that. Okay. And meanwhile, this ice pick is still in Jimmy's eye. Okay. And I don't know how deep it was. I I don't even know if it was that deep. Okay. I was scared. What's he saying? God damn it, I trusted you and I need that money because our whole family's going to be kicked out. Don't you fucking care that my children are going to be homeless? Angela's version of the encounter, the only version we'll ever hear, is that Jimmy went into a blind rage when she told him she wouldn't get the money for him. When he attacked her, she stabbed him in his eye with an ice pick. It was at this point, Angela made her next move. And he was still coming at me. So I, I go for the 
This time, Angela found a very interesting piece of equipment. Two pieces of PVC pipe connected by a length of TV cord. Angela told the detectives her kids used it to climb trees. She said she wrapped it around his throat, pushed her feet into his chest, and pulled until he stopped breathing. I don't even know how the pit got in the other eye. Somehow the pit gets in the left eye? Okay. I think I did it just to make sure. So you think he was dead, but to make sure he was dead, you took the pick out of his right eye and jammed it in his left eye. And you say you're motioning as if you reamed it around. Did any blood come out of his eye? Any blood get on the seat of the car? No. Well, where did the blood go? I pushed his head back and it kind of started dripping. So then she said she knew that she had to get out of the Osteen Cemetery. So what she did was she used saran wrap that was also in the car to kind of saran wrap his head to the, the headrest so his head wouldn't flop forward on the drive back to her residence. She said she even passed a couple of deputy sheriffs on their way into work with Jimmy's head saran wrapped to the, to, the, uh, to the headrest on her way back to the house. When she arrived home, she placed Jimmy's body into a kiddie pool in her garage and then took a nap. When she woke up, that's when Angela made her next move. She began trying to dispose of Jimmy's body. What did you do with the hacksaw? She cut him up. How'd you cut him up? Legs first? Arms first? I don't remember. I just started Angela was admitting to dismembering Jimmy's body. A horribly gruesome thing to hear. But it only got worse from there. So you took arms, legs, and head and put them in the other kiddie pool with the salt, and then you, you mentioned pots. What was the purpose of putting the those things in pots? To cook them down. You were trying to cook them down to bone? I don't know why. Do you think that was the best way to try to get rid of him? And did you do these things? Yes, sir. You told me before that you you tried to put one of the extremities in the oven and that it went horribly wrong. I put two of them in the oven. Were they legs or arms? A foot. A foot? Using the stove and oven in a misguided attempt to get rid of the evidence, the house soon became filled with a gut-wrenching stench. When Angela's daughter asked her what the smell was, she told her it was from a rat that had gotten trapped in the oven and accidentally broiled. What were you hoping was going to happen by putting the foot and this other body part in the, in the oven? I was going to try to cook it to ash. Burn. Cook it to, oh, burn it to ash, cremated? And when this didn't work, what was uh, what did you do next? I put it in the Okay. Did you try to boil any other body parts? No, I think so. Hearing these gruesome details was a lot for the detectives to take in. But then Angela revealed to John what she'd meant by what she'd said to him earlier at the police station. So she goes on to tell us how she cut him up in these kiddie pools and then that his body was definitely in the house the day that Jessica and I were there across the street. Her, her words to me were, were, why didn't you come in the house that first day? His head was in a pot on the stove and his leg or his arm was in the oven. She said, I was trying to make him smaller. She, she must have said that two or three times. 
during that confession that her goal was to, to make him smaller, to make him easier to dispose of. That meant that if John and Sergeant Pa had at the very least gone a little closer to Angela's house that day, they almost certainly would have smelled what Angela had been up to. And then she went on to tell us that she bagged up all the body parts and some of the evidence. She cut up the kiddie pools and had to cut up some of the carpet in, the, in her car because it had been you know, blood stained or, or, or whatever. So she put all of the body parts and evidence into a bunch of different uh, garbage bags. And she said she knew from watching crime shows that she didn't want to dump all this in one spot. So she said she started out at the east end of Volusia County, which is New Smyrna Beach, and then just picked businesses with dumpsters and then started dumping bags with her children's help. She said that there was bags in the back seat, there were bags in the trunk. Her daughter was in the back seat with some of these bags, which is which is sick. Angela also stated that she buried Jimmy's phone and ID in other locations, periodically going back and turning the phone on to make investigators think Jimmy was still alive and on the run. Remember all those text messages Jimmy had supposedly been sending out after his disappearance? It had been Angela the entire time. Eventually, Angela led investigators to Jimmy's bagged remains, or what was left of it. Jimmy's head and torso were never found. They say that speaking the truth is like shedding a heavy coat you've been carrying for far too long. And this isn't far off from what John Brady witnessed with his own eyes in Angela's case. When we first made contact with Angela, she was very, very skinny. And then our interactions with her, she was either wearing sunglasses or averting any kind of eye contact, looking down at her feet, looking down at the ground, to the point I had to tell her to, to look me in the eye. I said, Angela, look me in the eye. That period, that two-week period, I kind of saw her deteriorate even further. It was just like something was eating away at her. And then after she confessed, as and actually as she was confessing, as she was confessing, she started to make eye contact with both me and AJ, the other investigator. She was actually becoming personable. So it, it was pretty shocking to me to see her go from this completely withdrawn, almost withering human being to someone that almost came back to life once that weight had been lifted off of her shoulders. It, it definitely could be said that, you know, she was a different person before and after her confession. Angela's trial began December 2nd, 2014. She'd been charged with second-degree murder, abuse of a corpse, and tampering with physical evidence. Her defense team decided to stick with Angela's story, that Jimmy had attacked her, and that she'd done nothing more than defend herself legally. But this claim soon fell apart when the prosecution presented a few key details. The first came from Angela's own sister, the same one who'd originally called emergency services to have Angela committed. According to her, during Angela's confession to her family that night, she'd admitted to secretly drugging Jimmy with the Flexerol. And instead of driving out to the cemetery together, as Angela claimed, she'd simply waited for Jimmy to pass out unconscious and then strangled him from behind. The prosecution also had evidence that Angela purchased cleaning supplies just hours before the murder, along with rubber gloves, plastic wrap, and saw blades. 
No one believed she had any intention of actually cleaning her filthy house, and the cleaning supplies were enough to prove premeditation. Her charges were then elevated to first-degree murder. On December 5th, after deliberating for three hours, the jury found Angela guilty of first-degree murder, abuse of a human corpse, and tampering with physical evidence. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. What started as a supportive friendship between two people, both facing difficulties they could each relate to, soon developed into a power struggle centered around minor fraud, brought to a boiling point by financial difficulties. And then, one of them snapped. Jimmy's family was left with a gaping hole in their lives with him gone, including becoming homeless. Angela's children were left motherless. Today, Angela runs a website from prison, pleading her innocence, hoping that an attorney will take her on pro bono, still believing she acted in self-defense. Neither Jimmy nor Angela had the help they truly needed to thrive, and in the end, the relationship between two people desperately struggling to keep their heads above water proved to be nothing but toxic, unstable, and ultimately deadly. An adult is allowed to go missing if they choose, but when they unwillingly go missing, they're not always found. Which means James Schaefer could very well have become another cold case. But thanks to the dedicated work of law enforcement and the dogged determination and persistence by Jimmy's father, not only was closure brought to this case, it was brought to all those who grieved the loss of Jimmy. This case is a prime example of teamwork in law enforcement and a law enforcement success 100%. Had it been not for the team's persistence, this is very well may have been a cold case and we would have never found out what happened to Jimmy Schaefer. It was only through the persistence and the teamwork that we were able to find justice for, for Jimmy's father and, and for Jimmy's family. This was a complete team effort. It, it answered questions that, that, that the family had and particularly Jimmy's father. This was an excellent example of teamwork and law enforcement resolving a, a case for a family. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>